0: Hey guys, we've, um, we've got Dave Hodges going to be bringing the word with us today. David has the best title of a job. He's a radiation oncologist, medical physicist. Close, close. Close, close to, close to that. Um, Dave's one of our elders. He's part of our Preston's campus and he has a, he's got a great character, loves God and passionate about God's word. Um, at nine o'clock, I heard the message, wowza. Praise God for you. Let's welcome David as he brings the word today. Thank you, brother. Hey, it's wonderful, wonderful to be here. I love every opportunity I have to come out here and join you guys. All right. So, um, I want to preface this, as I said in the first service, I want to preface this this morning by saying, it is my intention this morning to impress upon you the supreme majesty of God and of his word this morning. I want to impress upon you, I use different words this time, I I want to impress upon you the majesty of God and his word this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you that you speak, and thank you that you have given us your word, God, and I just pray this morning that the only words spoken are your words, God. Uh, I've done my best to to hear from you, God, and to, to present this this morning, but ultimately, God, this is about you. I pray that your words are spoken, God, that you move in people's hearts this morning, God. That people receive your word, Amen, Amen. All right, let's dive in. So, recently, one of my co-workers, um, she shared with me a very brief story, um, very out of the blue, while we were around the lunch table at work one day. So, a couple of months ago, and she goes, "My primary school age kid, one of two, came up to me the other day, and just randomly asked me." Mom, what's the Bible? And she said she was shocked because she grew up knowing about the Bible. She went to church, she went to Scripture, raised in a Christian home, as far as I'm aware. And, and she kind of just felt during that time of life, too, there was just this general awareness of Christianity in society. And... So she was really genuinely shocked that her child would come to her with this question. Um, that said, they don't go to church. The child doesn't go to scripture. Um, and she kind of just thought that this knowledge kind of existed in society. You know, you know about church. You hear a bit about people going to church. You know, it's on the news kind of thing. And it would just kind of happen. It didn't happen. And hence, the child comes with this question, Mom, what's the Bible? I wonder how you would answer this question this morning. What is the Bible? What do you think of when you hear the term the Bible? You've probably heard others express their opinions about it at one point or other. Some of those opinions sound like it's a book of rules. It's a book of religion. It's a book of wise sayings. A book of fairy tales. I heard that one quite recently. Um, A relic of the past. Um, It's boring. It's outdated. It's irrelevant for today. These are some of the ideas that people throw around. But we know, of course, that it's worth much more than all of those. So this morning, I wanted to delve into this question and to think about what it means for us. Now, you could answer this question many different ways. Uh, And so I'm not going to say that my response is is an exhaustive response because there is so much in the Word of God. But this is my response to the question. So let's dive in. I'm going to present you five key thoughts on what is, um, what is the Bible. So number one, the Bible is the word of God. I want to start by reframing this whole conversation and by saying that the Bible is the word of God. So wherever we say the Bible, we can replace that with the word of God or God's word. Why do I say this? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 reads this. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, other translations read that it says breathed out by God or inspired by God. All Scripture is God-breathed. Not some Scripture, not most Scripture, Not just the scriptures that are easy to understand. Not your mum's favourite scripture. No, no. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, you might ask then, but didn't humans write the Bible? Well, yes, they did. The biblical picture of how the Bible came to be is that in a range of ways, God spoke to his people through history. In some cases, God essentially dictated what he wanted to say, as in the case of Moses. In other cases, he gave dreams or visions and people wrote them down. His prophets just declared what they heard from God. In other cases, the Holy Spirit moved in people to give them what to write. What we see frequently is God partnering with his people to record his words. In the Old Testament alone, get this, over 2,000 times... The Bible asserts that God spoke the words that are written within over 2,000 times. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says every word of God proves true. Psalm 12 describes God's word as pure, like refined silver. That is, it contains no impurity. That is to say there is nothing false in it. Psalm 119 says that God's promises have been thoroughly tested, that is, found to be true. Jesus himself says the word of God, God cannot be broken, in John 10, referring to the accuracy and the authority of Scripture. Friends, this is the word of God, and it is true, and it is trustworthy. So naturally, you might then ask, well, what is God like? Number two, the Bible is a revelation of God. Now, we could stop here all day. This one, we could be unpacking for weeks. But I've picked out five-ish, because I'm going to cheat on the last one, um, things to present to you that God te- the Bible tells us about God. Number one, God is the creator, So in Genesis and many times throughout the Bible, we read that God made everything in existence, everything, the universe and all it contains. Science continues to discover and learn new things about the world day by day. We read about it in the the news all the time. And it blows my mind to think that God knew that all along. And he's just going like, yeah, cool, I I, I did that, I made that. I knew that way before you did. In, Moses, in, sorry, in Psalm 90, verse 2, Moses says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So Moses is saying that God exists outside space and time, which makes sense because he had to create space and time. But... Also, that hurts my brain, because, like, how did Moses know? Well, we kind of have to assume divine revelation, right, because Moses wasn't there, but we know that Moses got to have a lot of intimate conversation with with God, which really opens the can of worms of, what else did Moses learn? Like, what else did God reveal? Like, that must have been incredible conversations. But he revealed this to him, that God himself is outside everything so that he can create everything, and now he's in everything. Crazy. Crazy. The psalmist in Psalm, verse, uh, sorry, Psalm 8 verse 3 says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Question, how big do you think God is? Like if you are to picture God in a body, how big do you think God is? Because this is my, my thought pattern. Jesus is a man like us, so he'll be of similar stature. Yes, I'm short, but you know. Apparently they were shorter back then, anyway. Um, And then I'm like, well, God the Father is a father, and fathers are larger than the kids, so God will be taller. That's bad logic, I know, but my brain. Um, And then I go, okay, but then we read about. We're going to talk a bit uh, soon about how God appeared like in this pillar of fire and smoke, like to lead a nation of people, which they could see. So he must be really tall. So what is he like? Ten stories tall? Maybe I don't know. And then I come to this verse. And then it says, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. Like, how big is God that he's just like, there's a star, there's a star, there's a planet. Like, I don't get it. And then in Jeremiah, we read, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. And by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. We frequently read these three things in combination, God having the power, the wisdom, and the knowledge or understanding to do what he needed to do. And he wasn't limited in any way. He had more than he needed to create everything that you see in existence. But not only that, we read this other expression a couple of times, stretched out. God stretched out the heavens, God stretched out the earth. Does that not just sound effortless? Like, just stretched out and that it existed. Like... Maybe, maybe the, the authors here are being a little bit poetic, but it just sounds so effortless for God. And then in the book of Amos, we read in chapter 4, He who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, as God's speaking to us again to give us his word, he who treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. When I was in Hawaii a number of years ago, um, there's a couple of really prominent mountains and volcanoes that you can, you can go up, um, drive up, um, partly because there's an observatory on one, but also just because apparently the, the sunset views are incredible off the top of this mountain. And so we planned to do it, a bit of a tourist thing, but, you know, I'm all for, for nice sunsets and photography and whatnot. So we're like, let's do it. And basically everything we read was like, OK, cool, you're a tourist, go do it. But whatever you do, Do not overexert yourself while you are up there. You might faint because the air is so thin, right? And then we have a verse like this, and then God's just walking around Everest like, no big deal. Do we grasp how big God is? One more verse for you. Job 26, verse 7. And Job says, God hangs the earth on nothing, which is true if you think about it, because the earth is just sitting in a vacuum, which is space, right? It's not supported by anything, it's just there. Now, how did Job know that? Well, again, we assume divine revelation, right? God must have revealed this to him. And, and it's part of a creation passage where he's also a bunch of other stuff is revealed to him. Um, but that comes at a time when other religions used to think things like, oh, yes, flat earth, or the earth existed on the back of a giant elephant, because that's logical, or on the back of a giant turtle. Equally, like, how does a religion come up with that idea? I don't know. And then Job is given this truth. And then within that, we read things that, that, you know, he's acknowledging the God's the creator of the skies and the mountain and the seas, and then God killed a couple of sea monsters for some reason. Don't know about that bit. But he finishes with this incredible description. And these are but the outer fringe of his works. How faint the whisper we hear of him. Who then can understand the thunder of his power? What an amazing verse. These are but the outer fringe of his works. Our God is truly amazing. Now, if we think about this a little bit more, If God has all the power and all the wisdom and all the knowledge required to be creator as demonstrated in creation, then that automatically makes him the greatest and highest thing in all of creation. We call that God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. I.e., God is God. He has supreme power and authority over everything. He does whatever he wants. Yes, that's a quote from scripture. Psalm 115 verse 3 my slight paraphrase, but basically, God does what he wants because he's God. Now, you could take all that in and go, that sounds a little bit scary. What is a God like that likely to actually do now? Thankfully, the Bible illuminates us further on this. God is good. Psalm 31 verse 19, oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up For those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you. Psalm 145 says the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Psalm 103 says the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. Is anyone thankful that the Bible says that about God? And to cap that off, we read in 1 John that God is love. Blanket statement says it twice God is love. So, yes, God is sovereign, but fortunately for us, God is good and loving, and He happens to care about us a whole lot. Now, we can spend a lot of time looking at this sort of area of the Bible about God's love and goodness, and, and if we were to fix our whole view on that, then we could make the mistake of thinking that He's just loving that he's a big softy. But there is also a fierceness to God. There is a seriousness to God. And I really want to try and capture that, as I always do when I talk about this topic, to present a full full view of God. And what I landed on was to say that God is just. Because God is a God of justice, and with justice comes judgment. And those are concepts we grasp reasonably well. Deuteronomy 32 says, He is the rock. His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is He. His works are perfect. He does no wrong. God is not capable of doing wrong. God is good all the time. He cannot not be good. And the point of that is that it ties in with this idea that yes, God has a standard and he holds to the standard because he can perfectly exist within that standard of justice and goodness. And we can't because we're, we're human. And it creates this idea of holiness. I almost made that the sort of the other point here is that the two are kind of attached. The holiness of God is kind of the highness of God, the greatness of God that he is so perfect and he holds to this standard And everything about God is tied to his purpose, by definition. Because we say that holiness is about being set aside for a purpose. Well, God is holy because by definition, he can only ever live out his purpose, if that makes sense. And to give you kind of a visual, it's a little bit um, separate, but to try and give you a picture, I landed on Exodus 19. Now, God's just brought his people out of slavery. He's rescued them. He's brought them through the wilderness, and he's taking them to this mountain. He says, I'm going to meet with you. Get ready. And this is what we read. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. So you can picture what they're seeing that they are trembling. Mount Sinai was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. All of that because God decided to turn up. He wasn't even there for judgment. He wasn't there in that sense to be a big, severe God. He just turned up. And that's what it looked like. And so I always partner this idea of that side of God when we talk about God as love because I don't want to rob any majesty from God. God is massive. And I think for us to be truly reverent and respectful, we always want to try and keep the whole picture of God in frame when we talk about God. All right. So that's a bit about God. Point number three, the Bible is a historical account of God's interaction with humanity. Our God is not a God far off. He is a God who has stepped into history to interact with us. And so people wrote about it so we would have these accounts of God. In the Bible, we have 66 books. That is 1,189 chapters for those of you who were like, that's a big job written by about 40-ish different authors over approximately 1,600 years. Authors who saw God move and speak in various different ways. They saw a God who works powerfully. We read about, just to take a quick snapshot, we we read about the the mighty wonders such as the ten plagues of Egypt. These are just crazy events that God brought upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh and his people, because they were enslaving the Israelites and he wanted to free his people. Having done that, God then guides them as a great pillar of fire at night and a great pillar of cloud during the day, a visible presence before his people that people could look and see as he guided them where he wanted them to go. We read about many miracles throughout the word. People being cured of leprosy and other horrible diseases, conditions, We read these crazy miracles of multiplying a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread to feed a crowd of thousands of people. God did that on at least two separate occasions, according to the Gospels. The scientist in me would love to know how God actually made that happen, because, like, just in reality, like, you've got this much food and thousands upon thousands of people. Like, what did that distribution look like? Is the food literally growing before their eyes, and they're just like they're trying to keep up? Like, get it out there before, like, the basket of a first? I don't know. I don't know. It blows my mind to think about. We see demons being cast out of people. And this crazy transformation where people can go, like, that person, there was something wrong with that person, and now they're just, like, they're clear-minded. And they can, we can talk with them again. Like, incredible. I mean, we even see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, literally the dead back to life. God performing miracles. And we see God saving and forgiving people. Murderers given a second chance. Corrupt tax collectors given a second chance to not ruin people's lives, but actually be a blessing on society. We see people's lives turned around. We see people given hope and purpose for the future. There are so many stories like these. I've just given you a glimpse of what the word contains. Real stories of real people who existed and witnessed what God was doing. All written down for us. Friends, God is real and he has revealed himself to us because he created us. He's interested in us and he wants to be part of our lives. And this is where we have attention. See, God has this standard that he wants us to live by, as we've discussed, and we all fail it. God's word reveals to us right from the early days of creation, sin entered the world in the form of man disobeying God. Adam and Eve, they had one job. Well, it's kind of like one anti-job, because they did the job of naming animals and stuff, but they didn't do the thing they were told not to do. Restriction. You had one restriction at Adam and Eve, And so, in their model, if we can call it that, we continue to disobey, we continue to stuff up, we continue to turn our backs on God and make our own choices and follow our own priorities. God is truly good and right and holy, and in his justice, God cannot tolerate sin and wants to punish it, for which the punishment is death. And so there is this separation between us and God and the tension is, as we've seen, that over here, God is, God is love, and God is good, and God cares about us, but then over here, God stands for justice, and holiness, and his standard. And he can't tolerate sin, even the slightest bit. And then there's us in the middle, subject of God's love, but also subject, subject to God's anger and wrath. And it's like, how do you resolve that? Well, God certainly knew that we couldn't resolve it. And so, he enacted his uh, rescue plan for us. Point number four. The Bible is a revelation of Jesus, God's son. If you only wanted one, a one-line summary of the Bible, that's it. The Bible is a revelation of Jesus Christ, God's son. Jesus was God's rescue plan for humanity. God knew that we could not save ourselves. So God sent his one and only son, Jesus, who became God in flesh to take the punishment for us. He set aside his divinity to live life as a man and experience life like us to die for our sins. Now, imagine being God and giving up for a time part of that godness, if you will. Giving up the power giving up immeasurable knowledge and wisdom to live life as a man. Like, that's hard for us to appreciate because we're not God and we don't know what it's like in the first place. But that seems like a lot to give up. And it's, like, hard to grasp because Jesus was fully God. Jesus is fully God and is fully man at the same time. But he didn't stop being God. But he set aside the privileges of being God which made him more reliant on God the Father to get through this life like us. So he's relying on God for his direction every day. God, how do you want me to live? Who do you want me to speak to? What do you want me to do? And he lives this life that we couldn't. He doesn't sin. He does that for years, doesn't sin. Never disobeys God. He lived the life that we couldn't. And he lived this perfect life and then spends a few years at the end with this incredible ministry where he's healing people and he's teaching people. He's transforming lives. He's loving people. And then because he was so loving, the religious leaders killed him because they couldn't take his message. (laughs) Crazy. They hated him. Like, this can't be right. They refused to believe his message and they crucify him. Jesus gives himself up as the perfect sacrifice for our sins because of God's great love for us. And then God raises him from the dead to conquer death once for all time. That, again, blows my mind. And not only that, but makes a place for us in heaven with him. Like, these truths are just life-changing. Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. In him we see the fullness of God's mercy and grace shown towards humanity. It is simply the greatest thing that the world has ever known and is revealed to us in this book. Which brings us to my final point this morning. The Bible is a communication from the author of creation to you. God recorded All of this for us. The Bible is not just a history book. It's not just a character study of God. It is not just a set of incredible stories, nor is it just a book of wisdom and things to live by. No, the God who created the world gave you this. The God who says, I am the definition of love wrote you this. A God who says, I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth. It's he who moved throughout many people of faith down through the ages so that today we could have this. So God could reveal himself and his plans to you. So let me ask you this morning, what are you doing with the Word of God? What are you doing with the Word of God? Our theme for this year has been faithful. You've probably heard it a few times by now. Full of faith. Well, where does faith come from, you might ask? Well, Romans ten seventeen tells us faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That is the message of salvation about Jesus Christ. May I suggest this morning that if we're going to be faithful people, if this is going to underpin our faith, if this is what our faith is built on, then we need to be faithful with what God has given us. So how are you being faithful with the word of God? What are you doing with the word of God? Well, you might respond to me, what, how do we be faithful to God with his word? What does it say to do? Very quickly, five things. Number one, make daily time for it. Jesus quotes the Old Testament in Matthew 4, 4, where he says, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is to be daily food for us. Not Sunday food or weekly food or occasional snack. No, it is to be daily food for us. We're meant to be in the word every day. Number two, meditate on it. This is more than just reading the word, but spending regular time contemplating about it, thinking about it, dwelling on it. Having it on audio can be super helpful here in our busy lives. You can listen while jogging. You can listen while cleaning your house or when you're driving your car. Now, given Sydney traffic, I think we pretty much all have a responsibility, really, to be meditating on God's Word while we are driving. If you spend a bit of time out there, you you know what I mean. Devotionals or podcasts can can help here. We can probably wrestle out whether they're theologically that's strictly meditating, but they are helpful for us to think about and spend time with the Word. Number three, pray it. Ask God to make clear his truth to you. Praying biblically helps us uh, to keep our prayers in line with God's will, and it reminds us to pray in line with his promises. And related to that is responding to the word. If you spend enough time in the word, you are going to find reasons to be thankful to God, and you're probably going to want to tell him. I dare say that is a very natural response. And lastly, share it. It's good news, we call it good news for a reason. We know that this is the most significant thing that we have to offer the world. Be ready to share it. Now I know that is scary and intimidating for some, depending on the person, depending on the scenario, Uh, but we've been called to share it. I was at my dentist the other day, and she starts out and goes, what did you do on the weekend? I'm like, do I tell her that I preached at my church? Because I was at Preston's last Sunday. And straight in that moment, I'm like, my brain can go into a spiral of how's she going to respond, what's she going to think, etc., etc., etc. I'm like, nope, it's the truth. That's what I did. I'm going to say it. And then, lo and behold, we had a short conversation about it, and I survived, and I'm here to tell the tale. So <laughs> as much as, you know, it can seem scary, you know, especially if it's a person you don't know very well, um, you know, it's actually not that bad. It's just conversation at the end of the day, you know? and God has called us to share it. Make daily time for it. Meditate on it. Pray it. Respond to it. Share it. What are you going to do with the word of God? Final thought for you this morning as the band comes up. Now, I could ask you, on reflection of all of this presented this morning, what is your response? And I hope that most, if not all of you, can and would respond that you recognize that God is truly magnificent, that the word of God is incredibly valuable, and that Jesus is worthy of all our praise. That would be a natural response to the message. So answer me this. How do we hold on to the significance of the word of God when we go home? when it's not being presented to our faces? When we get up and it's Monday morning and we have to go to work and start the week's routines. How do we hold on to that significance of the word of God for us in our everyday life? Because there is, there is a magnificence to God that I've hopefully presented this morning and to his word and it deserves to be honored. He's packaged it in paper, and he's given it to you. I was thinking about that. There is something very godlike about taking that level of magnificence and presenting it to us as humbly as in a book. It's a little bit like a God who puts aside his divinity to present himself to us as a human. And the risk is that we lose sight of, of the significance, because it's humble, because it's a book. I mean, these days, how many books are in the world? How many books are in your house? I might imagine for a bunch of you that your Bible might be stacked up on a shelf amongst them, and maybe at face value, it doesn't look all that different. How do we be faithful with the Word of God? Well, God pointed me to one additional tool, one response this morning, and that is this. We treasure it. Final scripture for this morning. The kingdom of heaven, this is Jesus, Jesus speaking, a very brief parable in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Ah, Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Note in the parable, he sells everything. All he has to buy the field, to acquire the treasure. He sold all he had because the treasure, that is the message of Christ that leads to salvation, became his number one priority. He sold all he had. I wonder if you need to give something up to make time for the message of Christ, to give the Word of God a higher priority in your day. Do you treasure the Word of God? We watched that Transform Cambodia video earlier and Rachel was one of the, uh, one of, one of the team who went over there and she was telling us about it at Preston's last week. And she said, one of the most incredible things about it was just to watch the kids and how they related to the Word of God. Because these kids had nothing. And then, these people have come into their life and presented this. And it's just transformative. And the kids just go... This truth changes everything. I have nothing and now I have everything. And she specifically said it's, they treasure it. They treasure what they've been given. They treasure the word of God. Church, God has given us so much. Do we grasp it? He's given us so much. It's up to us to decide how we'll respond. Amen. Let's pray. God, <clears throat> thank you for all that you have given us and done for us. It will, it will never be enough for us to tell you that, God, but it's what we have, is just to worship you and say, thank you, God. You are incredible. You are amazing. You are phenomenal because you've given us so much You've given us your word. You've given us your son. You've given us a perfect sacrifice. And you've given us relationship and a place in heaven. God, help us to honor that every day. Help us to honor you every day and wake up going, I want to make this day about keeping God number one. And then the next day, I want to wake up. I want to keep this day about keeping God number one day after day God we want to keep you in that place we want to honestly be able to say God is at the center of my life God help us to desire that and then help us to step out and live that God but we need your help God we need your transformation to do that it's not in our strength that we do anything God it's in you so God transform us motivate us inspire us help us to keep you at the center always. Amen.